Hi there, it's Daniel Schwartzman, co-host of A Positive Jam. We're building towards season two of A Positive Jam, covering Separation Sunday. To do so, Sean Westfall, Mike Taylor, and I dug into the canon of rock and roll to find the best Catholic rock songs based on our quite subjective taste. We think this will be relevant to Separation Sunday and our analysis of the album, and it's a fun preseason episode to do before the holidays. Let's waste no further time. Here we go. All right, guys. So we are, as we are getting ready for season two, Separation Sunday is an album that is drenched, I would say, in Catholic imagery and in Catholic themes. Speaking as somebody who is not Catholic and less familiar with those themes, but it's still, it's hard to... Hard to listen to that album and not think about those themes. And so as a way to kind of get warmed up and to get excited for the season ahead, we thought to put together a list of greatest Catholic rock songs. As listeners might remember from season one, when Sean came on board, I think it was on the Sweet Pain episode, we talked about the Catholic rock belt, greatest Catholic band in the world. So this was a natural extension. Guys, any before we dive into, we assembled a list. We convened and sort of spitballed on a few. The list will not be all inclusive. It will be primarily solely English language works. So I am sure yeah. we will have gaps. I have also some some other parameters that I think we should set up for people just so that they're not disappointed when we go through the list. When I googled for like best Catholic rock performers and other deep research, I did for this. Podcast trailer <laughs> episode. There's websites like with names like Catholic Home Living or Family Catholic Life, and they have hardest rocking Catholic musicians. This list contains none of those. These are rock bands or rock performers who have created songs that have some Catholicism, arguably within their DNA. It is not a list of Catholics who happen to write rock songs. I just want to sort of clarify in terms of set theory how we went about this. So we took rock performers that are well known as mainstream performers or that we know intimately and tried to find music that has Catholic overtones rather than plunging into the deep and probably very interesting world of performance who are Catholics first and rockers second. Right. And I think that we can also add, or just to broaden the parameters, that in rock and roll, Catholic doesn't mean go to mass every Sunday and confess and keep catechism. And that. Catholic can also mean completely in-school rock. Someone who's a performer or band that has not broken with those rock traditions. That's another way of thinking of a Catholic band that they are not out of school. So, yeah. All right, Sean, I think you let off the list. So do you want to go with your top entry? Yeah, um, so I chose 40 by U2, which is on the War album. Also my first introduction to U2. I've often described U2 as the most famous Christian rock band on the planet. And it's weird because I, I, I once had a conversation with a very good friend, a guy who's well-versed in music, I mean, it, by leaps and bounds over me. And he was surprised to find out how much religious and or Catholic imagery sits at the center of U2's songs. And this is something like, 
I thought everyone knew this. I thought everyone knew that this band is not just Catholic, but unapologetically Catholic. Again, not the sort of opus day right-wing Catholicism, but more of a, the left-wing Catholic, obviously. And the song is called 40, and it's what it actually is. It's uh, one of the few songs that the band didn't write. It's Psalm 40, set to music. The opening lines are, I, I, I wait patiently for the Lord. And again, I, I'm really surprised that most people don't understand this about you too. Again, they're not one of my top favorite bands on the planet. I, you, you can't be young in the 80s without, without having confronted you two at some point in your life. But they're a, an unapologetically Catholic band. So that's how, how I, I shaped that, that, that song. I think of you two the way I saw maybe on allmusic.com or somewhere a line about George Harrison that every song that has the second person in it that you could either be a love interest or God in whatever manifestation George right. Harrison looks at it. I sort of think you could say the same with you two in a lot of whether it's one, whether it's the streets have no name. There's right. again drenched in that imagery. Absolutely. Sean, you're a little bit older than me and Daniel. This are you for me there. I appreciate you that. just are. You are. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and that's important to my question, which is, was you two ever cool? I think they were not cool. Or I, I didn't think they were cool when I was in high school. I thought they were super uncool. It was like the pop type of era or whatever when I was in junior high and high. And I, I just, I couldn't get with it at all. But I'm looking at this era and I think they must have had some kind of edge or something more interesting about them during that time that I've never picked up on. You said you confronted them. So maybe you're not so high on YouTube either, but maybe you can kind of, in the context of this Catholicism thing, clear that yeah. up. I mean, look, guys, in war was required, like college radio played war. What, this is 1983 when war came out. As if, if if you didn't hear a cut from war on college radio, you weren't listening to college radio. They certainly weren't getting mainstream play at that time. Boy in October were sort of the lead-ins. Even Rolling Stone, Rolling Stone trashed every, either Boy or October when it came out. But war was sort of like a watershed event in the young lives of people my age. You had to listen to it. It, it was considered an alternative. Rolling Stone used to have college airplay top 10 or top 20 in the back of every issue. And you two sat alongside REM and replacements, who's your dude? They were all there. I guess it's a long-winded way of asking. Yeah, at one point in time, for about six or seven months in the 80s, YouTube was cool. They kind of went really mainstream with their follow-up album, which is where they kind of lost me to the Unforgettable Fire. I, I think the, the thing that I find off-putting is about you two, more on the subject, is that Bono seems bothered by the fact that he has to be a rock star. That being a rock star for him is an existential dilemma when he's a, he's, he always has been aspiring towards sainthood. One of the running jokes I have, I sort of post on Twitter every year after, it's an, after the Nobel Peace Prize is announced, is like Bono sitting in a bar going, who, the, who do I have to fuck to get a Nobel <laughs> Peace Prize? <laughs> because I'm fucking Bono. I'm doing shit around the world. So they were cool for about a couple of years in the early 80s. and then. They went ultra uber kind of mainstream. And they were cheese. The one thing I want to just, we don't have to discuss it because I think we'll get a chance to go at it again, is that Psalm 40 is from the book of Psalms, which is 
Old Testament. And so I right. think that's going to be an interesting, as we discuss, you know, right. work through these parameters. Yeah, I think that's going to be an issue the whole time. These are like Judeo-Christian. The one part that I thought was kind of that you might sort of throw a little Christian spin on the ball is the lines. He set my feet upon a rock and made my footsteps firm. That's what you would expect a Christian person to say, maybe even a Catholic person to say about Jesus. I feel like there's something about the embodiment or the physical connection there that maybe is the case for a little bit more of a Catholic spin, but you're right. And wasn't it Paul who said upon this rock, I shall build my church. Yeah. Rocks are huge and huge. Rocks are huge in, in the Christian and Catholic symbology. Speaking of rocks, our next performer certainly does that on occasion. We have Bruce Springsteen, hard to be a saint in the city spirits of the night. Who put this one on there? I put It's Hard to Be a Saint in the City. These tracks are eight and nine off his first album, Greetings from Asbury Park. It wasn't super well thought out. There's a line in there about the devil appearing like Jesus. Saint is in the chorus. and in the, So it's not super well thought out. I just feel like Springsteen, especially in those pre-born to run and through born to run, I guess is like this aspiring young kid from Jersey who has ingested a lot of rock and roll history, a lot of Dylan and is trying to spit it out all at once at times. And part of that is, it just feels like somebody who is coming out of Catholic school and who is like breaking the rules. I don't know if he explicitly references, I can't remember if he went to Catholic school or whatever. I just, that's where, to me, that gave that feeling, which is why I guess I gravitated towards an earlier album rather than some of his more well-known stuff. Yeah, and again, I think that that Springsteen is in school. He is, I mean, he is, if, if your rock tastes are Catholic, that's who you gravitate to. You gravitate to... A band that has drums, bass, keyboards, a sax player, a band that draws from all the traditions of rock and roll, horns, and you've got blues. Springsteen doesn't really sing, he belts. So he's got that sort of energetic feel. Again, Springsteen's one of those guys that you had to confront growing up in the 70s and 80s as far as rock. He's, he, you know, he was, oh shit, even, oh God, what's what's the guy's name? The guy who, who was a critic. Uh, John rock- Landau. John, yeah, who said, who said, I've seen the future of rock and roll, and his name is Bruce Springsteen, which has a quasi-religious feel. That was the opening line of his review of Springsteen. It has a quasi-religious feel to it, meaning, yeah, we're going back to our roots. We're going back to Catholic rock and roll, blasting it out, sweaty, work your ass off rock and roll. So, Yeah, I would also maybe add, first of all, I think we can't talk about Bruce Springsteen in the context of the whole study without sort of just mentioning that it, especially as we get further along into their career and and into Craig Finn's solo career, the degree to which his style is a really important sort of template and blueprint for a lot of the stuff that they do musically and lyrically. And as I was listening to Hard to Be a Saint in the City, I, I could hear some of that. I think Craig Finn has gone from 
shouting and yelling and being more of a hardcore vocalist to becoming more of a singer as his career has gone on. And I think his singing is just, it's very obvious the degree to which Bruce Springsteen has influenced the way he approaches singing. And you can hear it in Hard to Be a Saint in the City. There are times where Bruce is kind of straddling between talking and singing and using melody more as a way of generating a kind of forward momentum for the song than necessarily being a beautiful piece of music the way a lot of other singers sort of try and use melody. So that and the thematic nightlife get down in the muck and then find redemption is the huge thing for Bruce Springsteen and for the whole study. So while we're in this Catholic separation, Sunday is Catholic and these performers are Catholic. I think just want to bang home really hard the affinity between these artists, which is explicit and also implicit. Absolutely. And I agree. I think that when Craig name drops a lot of musicians and artists in his songs, you know, one of the reasons he does that is because he wants to let everyone know he is inside that Catholic, again, not religious, but that Catholic rock and roll realm. Craig's been pretty honest about the fact that, that one of the reasons he started the band was because he basically sat around his friends and said, how come nobody sounds like this anymore? How come nobody sounds like these guys or these girls, for, you know, for one of them? And also, he, he said, he also said, it's not rocket science. It's, this is not, you, you have a sing-along chorus, you go with energy, which is very, you know, very Catholic sort of rock and roll. Sean, you put Spirits in the Night on the list. You said, remind us why it was, it's based on a Yeats poem or something? Yeah, there's, there's a Yeats poem that's, that starts out, that's entitled Crazy Jane Talks with the Bishop. And basically it's a lay person having an argument about spirituality with, uh, you know, of course, a high placed person in the Catholic Church. And Springsteen alludes to this in the opening lines of Spirits in the Night. Crazy. And I added it because of a of, 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 of number of aspects. First of all, it's clear Springsteen has read that poem, and it's clear he's he if he's read it closely, he's familiar with the sort of religious discussion that's taking place and the religious oppositions that are at play. But also, again, it's a, a Yeats poem. It's a, it's it's definitely in the Yeats canon. It's been anthologized hundreds of times in in poetry anthologies. It's where I first encountered it. And Yeats is sort of he's not necessarily a Catholic poet. But he was, you know, he was born inside the whale. In Ireland, Catholicism is the air. You breathe it. So you have to confront it in some way. So that's, that's kind of why I threw that in there to sort of add more evidence to the idea that Springsteen's Catholic, big C and Catholic, small C when it comes to rock and roll. All right. You also get to take the next one, I think, because you put in the Water Boys, which before we get into... I will say Waterboys is one of those bands that I had never heard of until I saw, or maybe my wife showed me a video and This is the Sea. Ah, that's a great song. That's a great song. Yeah. The, that album too is great. Yeah. I ended up getting that album and this was a general, my wife being also a touch older. This was more her generation than mine, but you have the... The Stolen Child is the song that you had in mind here. So Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I'm standing by that selection, but I, now that you've uh, jogged my memory about the Waterboys, I think there are other selections that could sit there as well. 
The Stolen Child is a Yeats poem set to music. It's uh, it's another widely anthologized Yeats poem. But also, you know, you made me think of This Is The Sea and the end of this, that song, uh, the other album, This Is The Sea, contains the song, This Is The Sea. And the refrain at the end is, that was the river, this is the sea. That was the river, this is the sea. If you're familiar with biblical imagery, rivers and seas are rampant through Old Testament and New Testament alike. And basically, it's it, it, when you the river is is the the way you can get distracted, and, and the sea is the kingdom of heaven. So that's another way of, of thinking about how the water boys belong clearly in the Catholic. Yeah, both of those albums in particular are rife with religious imagery that could, again, an Irish band, you have no choice but to confront the air you're breathing when, when you're there, so. That means I want to get in now with an insertion because all this talk of Irish made me think of, uh, would, have, would have been probably a glaring omission if we didn't throw it in there, which is the Pogues, if oh, I yeah. should fall from grace with God. Shane McGowan is Catholic, so, man, we would have gotten dinged by the commenters. I'm completely crucified for missing that. I don't know if there's even that much to say about it. It's like sort of <laughs> one of the most sacred, profane type of blends you can get in the Pogues and, and Shane McGowan obviously being kind of like this dangerous, degenerate, but also poetic figure. There's just a lot of the grime and the danger that the Hold Study kind of aspire to. There, there's a little bit of Pogues in there and the sort of punk with traditionalism used together also seems like something that is worth mentioning while we're kind of in Ireland as much as we might be in Ireland right now with these. <laughs> I mean, with- I mean, thousands are sailing, right? That line, were your daughters in the White House, were they in the five and dime thousands are sailing? It's just a great brief musical history of, of Ireland and America as well. And your water, Sean, you got more water there. But true. You have it's more true. seas and oceans. Yeah, I would be remiss to not point out that we will not we are not done with William Butler Yates. We will be revisiting him soon enough in this season. Well, let's just quickly stipulate that he was Protestant, although didn't participate in either faith as an adult. So just for our Yates heads out there, (laughs) we we know that. The next one on our list feels a little more heterodox, and that would be Bob Marley's Redemption Song. I put this on. I'm having second thoughts about it. The reason I put it on is because redemption is huge in the Catholic Church. It's also redemption is huge in the whole steady universe. These personalities and somewhat criminal personalities and somewhat desiccated personalities are looking for salvation. So that's sort of why I have, that's, that was sort of like me spitballing it, but we can excise it. We can make it hetero, literally heterodox. (laughs) Wait, let's, before we throw him out of school, he was raised Catholic. Of course he was. Yeah. And he, I don't know. I'm just reading Wikipedia. I did not know. I thought he spent his whole, I don't know anything about Bob Marley, but so I didn't know this, that he was, he worked, he lived in Delaware for a while and worked at, in some industrial jobs. 
and then converted to Rasafari when he got back to Jamaica. And I think that lapsed Catholicism is an important thing too. And the urgency with which Bob Marley sort of became a fighter for the downtrodden is if you're more friendly with the idea of Catholicism, then you would gravitate towards that idea of Catholicism as well. So I don't know if, I think that the, his spirituality is obviously sort of subsumed by Rastafarianism in his adult life. But, you know, we're looking to put people in the Catholic bucket. So don't back off so quick. Sean. All right. Put him back in school. All right. Orthodox. <laughs> Speaking of, we have, we had talked when we were planning this about having a whole potential category of Jews for Jesus, i.e. <laughs> Jewish artists whose work can also fall into this tradition. We start first and foremost with Bob Dylan. And Sean, you had nominated Gates of Eden. Yeah, I mean, you, th there's, there's plenty of Dylan's oeuvre that you could throw into when, when Bob Dylan sort of converted to Christianity, and let's call it small C Christianity, that, that, that he converted to in the late 70s with albums like Slow Train, Coming and Save, People were flummoxed, like, what, what, how, what, when did this happen? And of course, those are the people who completely ignored or missed the point of even Dylan's early work, which is rife with biblical imagery, religious imagery. It's all right there. And easily the most religious song he's written is this one, at Gates of Eden, where he, he basically says, there's nothing, there's no truths outside the Gates of Eden. No truths outside the gates of Eden. And even people like Northrop Fry, who's one of the most respected literary critics in English history, has said that when he goes to undergraduate classes and tries to explain the overmind that's informing, say, Milton's Paradise Lost, he says, just listen to here's the here it is. <laughs> it, it, everything that happens out, outside of Eden it, are lies. The character of Satan in, in Paradise Lost is lying. He's lying. So if you can think about it that way, it'll be a great help. And he's actually, you. He when he was teaching, he would use Dylan's Gates of Eden as a way of sort of talking about Paradise Lost, which I think is high praise from someone like, like Murphy Pratt. So, And I just feel like the fall in general is such a rich story. And I hadn't really thought about it before, but I think Separation Sunday viewed through the lens of fall absolutely of eden is probably going to come up a lot as we get into the discussion song by song but that arc of going out into the world i think which was really hammered home when we did hostile mass out into the fog of love and faithless fear i think that's that's basically a fall image right there and i think we're going to come back to that a lot in separation sunday so i think this this idea of eden is going to be be a critical one. So I'm, I'm glad this one's on the list. Sean, I think this is Woo Life. This is probably the newest song we have, most recent published song. So what's, or it's not the song, that's the name of the band, but give us a song and a case for Woo Life. Well, I, I mean, <laughs> what can I say about Woo Life except that they too should be given, this album, Go, Go, Go Tall Fire on the Mountain, should be given a buried treasure-esque treatment by Mojo Magazine. It's an amazing album. And 
it, there's never going to be another one because Blue Life broke up about eight years ago, maybe a little longer than that. I saw them at the Rock and Roll Hotel in D.C., one of the most amazing shows I've ever seen. And you could tell the dynamic of the band. They were going to go. They were going to split. They, they were, it was a great show, but they clearly did not like each other. Well, they had to coax the keyboard player back out for the encore. Like, he did not want to come out. It was like you could, the drama taking place. All that aside, Wu Lai stands for World Unite Lucifer Youth Foundation, which I think is a kind of ironic title for a band because the opening chords of their first song, which is L-Y-F, it's this sort of echoey organ chords that sound like they're being played in the cathedral. It's just this echoey thing. And then talk about death and sons. And I said, son, you know, I'll love you forever. Your faith is true. You know, I love you forever, but my blood runs blue. And again, the lyrics are sort of garbled. They're hard to understand, but everything sounds like it could have, at least the opening chords sound like they could have been recorded in the cathedral circa 1463. So yeah, that's why I kind of why I chose. Yeah, when I listened to it, it reminded me of that we were just doing Catholic rock and not including Johann Sebastian Bach or right. Gregorian chanting or whatever. Like we had a there, right, right. there were some parameters there. Yeah, this, this one kind of fill, quasi fills those needs. <laughs> so I put on the next one, which is Patti Smith's In Excelsis Deo Gloria. And so this is where it's a good question for our exercise, whether when we talk about Catholic imagery, what's the difference between that and general Christian imagery, Judeo-Christian imagery, etc. But it start, starts with... Jesus died for somebody's sins, but Jesus not mine. Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. Milton, hot thieves. And it's a little poem she wrote that then is tacked on to a cover of Gloria, which was by the band Them, which was fronted by Van Morrison, and which was one of the, like, sort of in the group of songs along with Louie Louie and a couple others that were just the classic three chord rockers, garage rock of the 60s. And I mean, Patti Smith is just electric. It's an incredible song, the way it accelerates, the way it builds. I guess when I think of Catholicism, I think of also, and again, as somewhat of an outsider, but growing up in Massachusetts, being around quite a bit, is it contains a lot more struggle against Catholicism within it. Whereas other Christian faiths to me, there's less, it's just, it's, there's more of like, you can just get off the bus if you want. I mean, I had, I'm overgeneralizing and wiping out a lot of Southern literature, whatever, but it just feels to me like that defying the church is a big part of Catholicism in and of itself. And I can't think of any more direct defiance than that opening line right 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 what you see in that song is jesus died for somebody's sins but not mine and then it just starts going down 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 and then all of a sudden it sort of goes back up it's sort of like a like a musical arc where it explodes in glory and spirituality and all this stuff which is this sort of contradiction that's at the center of a catholicism b rock and roll c catholics D, non-Catholics, the sort of center of, you know, the center that's all our humanity is like, 
you know, no, fuck you authority, but no, I need some authority here in my life. Or no, I'm going to be unredeemed, but also I need some redemption in my life. So yeah, I, 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 I thought the Patty Smith song was an ideal, perfect choice. I'm up next. I think this was my only contribution to the list before we started recording, but I've got something to say about it. My selection is War Pigs by Black Sabbath. How is that Catholic? Black Sabbath? Catholic? Come on. Well, one of the critical elements of Catholic faith in particular, we keep dancing around what's Christian, what's Catholic, etc. In 20th century Catholic doctrine, one of the key distinctions is around the sacredness of human life. And that's often presented, especially among liberals and in contemporary political discussions as being a discussion around abortion. But it's a broadly applicable philosophical position. The sacredness of human life is paramount in all contexts, not just before birth. And I think that War Pigs by Black Sabbath as a band that delves into concepts of evil and madness and grind and sort of the occult, this song stands out because it's a protest song against war machinery and the industry of war. And it paints the war pigs as witches at black masses, an inversion of Catholicism, an inversion of the divine. Generals gathered in their masses Just like witches at black masses Evil minds that plot destruction This song, I think, one of the most powerful things about Catholicism, where it does the most good as an ideology or as a force in the world, in the material world, is when it is radically on the side of, of human life and on the side of all human life. This evil Black Sabbath band coming out on their debut album with this song that's so anti-war, I think, paints a really stark contradiction between the sort of life force at the center of spirituality and the institutions that can corrupt and undermine that. And I think that goes back to what Sean's saying about this kind of, instead of being a sort of personal plumbing of the depths of decadence, debauchery, or anti-authoritarianism, it's kind of this sort of more societal level look at, well, actually, you're calling out the authority as being corrupt and perverse rather than just rebelling against it. It's sort of like a spiritual rebellion. And so I think, I think War Pigs belongs on this list, sort of regardless of the Catholic status of Black Sabbath as a band for that reason. You know, the, this selection made me think of how frequently, and again, you guys are, I'm the old man here, I'm the graybeard here, so you guys don't remember this. But in the 80s, Heavy metal bands, of which we can consider Black Sabbath a you know a founder of this genre, were widely painted by religious people 
as as you know satanic as as anti-god as anti-christ as anti again it was fear-mongering of course but and again it, it, it elevated the platforms of horrible people like jerry falwell and, and others but what they what those guys seem to miss is that first of all let's let's, let's call it it's marketing of course <laughs> it sold a lot of albums to, to a lot of kids but what people like like evangelicals missed was to presume a Satan is to assume a God, <laughs> meaning you can't have one or the other, right? So it's not that heavy metal rockers were faithless, that they were, I think Dan pointed out how the Rolling Stone song, Sympathy for the Devil, is not anti-religious because it presumes, you know, an evil portion of this a sort of binary of God and, and of light and dark and, and God and Satan. And War Pigs is an example of how you know, you can use that sort of the black mask to to criticize society and talk about how faithless and hypocritical it is. Someone once pointed out to me that that I forget who it was. You guys, Ronnie James Dio. You guys know who Ronnie James Dio is? He was actually a part oh, yeah. of Black yeah, yeah. If 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 you look at his album art, it's Ronnie James Dio. If you turn it upside down, Dio spells out devil. <laughs> so take a look at that. So, of course, in one name, you have these two entities, you know, left and right, dark and light, spirituality and and Satanism or whatever, because you can't have one without the other. It's also the stereotype, you know, very high level stereotype is that the Old Testament is more fire and brimstone and the New Testament is more redemption to not overly characterize it. But the New Testament still has Revelation, which is a book that. Craig Finn draws on or refers to quite frequently both pre and during Hold Steady lyrics. And this is very much of Revelation, Judgment Day, and so forth. So we're rounding down the home stretch. Three artists left on our pre list. Sinead O'Connor is one, which from her landmark album, I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got, there is the title track, which talks about at one point about she has the bread and the wine, so she has the bread of life. It's very directly, there's no ambiguity that is not, you can't call that Christian imagery, that's Catholic imagery right there. Right, 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 right. And, and she's walking through the desert. I'm walking through the desert. I think it's the opening line, right? right? Yeah, I think, yeah, that's right. And then there's another track that is, I am stretched on your grave, which Per Wikipedia is a translation of a 17th century Irish poem, but as some thanks be to Jesus, as it has again more of the sort of Catholicism can be quite gloomy. I mean, I think to to use a recent right recent pop culture reference in Fleabag, they do a nice job of capturing some of the like darker imagery that is associated with. Catholicism. And I think this is a, I am stretched on your grave as an example of that. Sinead O'Connor, obviously, I, I mentioned that to my wife today and she's like, or maybe I mentioned it to my in-laws and they're like, yeah, but isn't she against Catholicism? And I was like, again, Catholicism is. Yeah. It's about hating it. Right. <laughs> well, she was banned from Saturday Night Live. You remember she tore up a photo of the Pope live on, on, during a live broadcast. Yes. Like the she, real enemy, right? And again, what she was attacking was 
the issues that the Catholic Church has had for centuries of pederasty and not acknowledging that, which only recently has it started acknowledging that, yeah, some priests did some fucked up things. So, yeah, so she was attacking that as well, primarily. Yeah, she had a legitimate case there. She is an interesting person, it seems like. I haven't read a ton about her, but according to Genius.com, she converted to Islam in 2018, which again, totally fine and changed her name. Okay. Then apparently tweeted, I never want to spend time with white people again, if that's what non-Muslims are called. I I think just from that, she carries a lot of righteousness and also like anger within her, which- Oh, yeah at the risk of offending her, may still place her within the Catholic school of thought. Being. The mode of being of Catholics. Just righteousness and anger. Yeah. Covers a lot of it. That's for sure. Okay. The next artist is our last Jew for Jesus entry is Leonard Cohen. (laughs) (laughs) Which Leonard is, we were talking before the show, quite warmly about Leonard. I'm a stan for Leonard Cohen for sure. His third album has a couple tracks about Joan of Arc, and you could argue either I proposed Joan of Arc itself rather than Last Year's Man, even though, you know, Last Year's Man specifically refers to Bethlehem and Babylon is like pulling in them as characters, whereas Joan of Arc is more, she's on the pyre. She's giving herself up to the sky to God, to whatever. Then fire Make your body cold I'm gonna give you mine to hold Leonard Cohen has tons of biblical songs that are clearly Old Testament but also he was very he was very religiously curious I think in his songwriting probably his poetry too i'm not as well read on his poetry and so this this was my nominee i agree i think is leonard from the the sort of catholic part of canada like montreal is he from that sort of like he's from montreal yeah yeah that would that would certainly that's one of the most catholic cities on the planet outside of others like paris and rome that was sort of providing with the imagery that's there i chose song of bernadette primarily because it's it's about bernadette of Lourdes who had that vision of, of the mother of heaven. That's straight down the middle of Catholicism right there. And also the, the redemption that's instilled in that song. I just want to hold you. Uh, won't you let me hold you the way Bernadette would do? It's just, it's, that song guts me whenever I hear it. It's just, it's a very moving, very spiritual song. Let's call it a spiritual song as well as, as, well as a Catholic song. Song of Bernadette is more notable as a cover. Our last entry, which I suspect will be our most controversial for certain people in the room, is Bell and Sebastian, the Scottish band of the 90s through the present day. On their first two albums, they had one song that was The State I'm In, which was the first song on their first album, Tiger Milk. Their title track on their second album was If You're Feeling Sinister. And they're both... They're not... Catholic themed in terms of religion, I would say. Well, the first one, sort of. It's about a lot of things, but part of it covers the confession to a priest who then takes all the stories and puts it in a pocket novel called The State (laughs) I'm In. There's a clever thing they do 
where the singer is ready to give himself up to God, and then there was a pregnant pause before one singer says, I said okay, and the other says, he said okay. And then if you're feeling sinister, it's more like directly about Catholic school. They're not a rock band. It's all fine, except that they're not a rock band. <laughs> Everything you said is okay. So they're just one small problem. <laughs> Listeners should know that Mike is... Mike, yeah, what, what, tell me, why do, you, why do you say that, Mike? Why do you say that? I mean, if I were to go into a record store and say, hey, I need a Bell and Sebastian album, I wouldn't be led to the folk section. I'd be led to the rock section. Maybe, maybe that's true. <laughs> but when I when I try and decide whether some whether a band is a rock band or not, I put the music on and I listen to it, <laughs> and I ask myself, "Does this rock?" And if the answer is "fuck no," <laughs> then it doesn't go in the rock band category. <laughs> that's it so wherever it is in the music store that can that's fine that's up to the proprietor he's got commercial interest you know i mean if it's probably in the music store's interest to put stuff that isn't actually rock into the rock section to help it <laughs> help move the units you know <laughs> so, so. So in, in, in your Catholic estimation, Bell and Sebastian is heterodox. They do not, they are not they are of the school. Out of school. We started right. in school and we are out of school at the end. Yeah. We've my, fallen from grace, Daniel. <laughs> Mike's taste in rock is very Catholic. Very, very Catholic. It's extremely, it's embarrassing. They did, I did got my Spotify what what happened this year thing. And it's like. Your most listened to, there are five, and it was like rock, classic rock, indie rock, pop rock, and punk. There you go. But that's because I have this very clear system in place for what music to listen to and not listen to. <laughs> Mike, you, you, you sound like a priest lecturing Catholic youth about what's right and what's wrong. There is a clear, clear line. And <laughs> this this band is on one side of the line. <laughs> and I'm on the other side of that line. Yeah. You have to make clear choices. That's a huge thing in Catholicism. There are rules, people. Thank you for listening to this preseason episode of A Positive Jam getting a sense of our Catholic rock taste. It will matter for Separation Sunday. Thank you to Sean Westfall and Mike Taylor for bringing their A-game to the table. You can find this playlist in the show notes or look up A Positive Jam Catholic Rock on Spotify. You'll find one bonus song, which we cut from this episode but is worth having on the list. Also, follow us on Twitter at, at Daniel Shortman at Sean Westfall, and at M. Brooks Taylor. Subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Leave us a review on Apple. Follow us on Spotify. We start breaking down Separation Sunday, January 6th. So watch out for our episode on Hornets Hornets. And 
If you're interested in coming on the show or have requests or anything else beyond those Twitter accounts, you can write to us at mail at shortmanstudios.com. That's mail, M-A-I-L, not mail, M-A-L-E. Thank you so much. Have a happy holidays and hold steady. We made it through 2020 and we're going to start 2021 with another positive jam.